Hey there, Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Overtime, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work we do as human beings, over time and across cultures. Today's show considers the phenomenon of licensed characters and intellectual property as manifested in the more rarefied high-culture realm of heritage attractions and art museums. We'll discuss the surprisingly ancient roots of modern brand imagery and trace how the business of IP licensing emerged and evolved into the stunningly profitable and ubiquitous global enterprise it is today, with iconic characters that have endured in some cases for more than a century. Led by archaeologist-turned-heritage-licensing specialist Georgina Dorothy, we'll focus on recent heritage and culture industry-licensed product offerings that promise to educate as well as advertise, and draw visitors into increasingly inclusive histories through a sophisticated array of branded items and immersive experiences. Trained as an archaeologist and historian, Georgina has worked in the UK heritage sector across licensed product categories including jewelry, home decor and furnishings, apparel, tea, gifting, and collector's items. Her work in volunteering within the heritage sector has given her an insider's appreciation for how museums, galleries, and institutions use licensed merchandise to meet their own curatorial and fundraising needs while building relationships with the visiting public. You can follow Georgina as she shares her travels, explorations, and participates in current social conversations of all kinds on Instagram at Georgina underscore Dorothy underscore. Georgina, I'm so happy to have you back. Welcome. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. This is so lovely to be back and with a totally different topic this time. First of all, I, I would like for you to give our audience the, the literal 101. We always start with the context for our conversation, but I think that this might be a term that not, not all of our listeners really know the meaning of. So what is intellectual property and, and how does it fit into the business of product licensing? Absolutely. So it's, it's basically one company renting um, the intangible assets, which could be a picture, a character, to put onto their own products. Product licensing is when we see products that are a collaboration, we see an IP property, so an intellectual property, which could be anything from Mickey Mouse is an intellectual property of Disney. We see um, William Morris designs, which are there's William Morris collections. He was an artist who created a lot of wallpaper prints. These are housed in a number of museums. We'll see his property on fashion today, um, shoes, on bags. Um, and then we'll see a range of other properties such as fashion designers. So um, very current at the moment, Halston was an American designer and he licensed out his name his brand onto a variety of products and then we'll also see sports ips so anything from the yankees to the mets to manchester united loads of different brands on a variety of products for their sports fans from notebooks to jumpers 
to trainers as well. And even then that feeds into sports players IP, such as Michael Jordan's trainers. And they would be created for a royalty, which would head back um, into either funding the museum um, and the sports team, etc. Okay, so basically it's when uh, a well-known character or some kind of story franchise, a design aesthetic, um, or a famous individual, whether you know an individual athlete or the team they play for is used to um, adorn a product. And everybody benefits from this, as you were just explaining. So the people who own the intellectual property or you know whatever it is that's being licensed and the institutions such as a museum which sell products adorned with these with these icons so it's kind of I always used to think of um my my own toys as having a barbie I'd have the barbie the barbie doll I'd then have a rug with say pink barbie items and then I'd have a bedding with barbie on and they would all be looking like exactly the same, but actually they're made from lots of different manufacturers, lots of different companies that have leased or rented the core IP, which is the doll, um, to then put those designs from a style guide and printed that and redesigned it, reworked the style guide, whether that's the flowers, the faces, the clothes, and they would redesign it in a different way for a different product. So this would then aim all the same products at a similar audience that they would feel, right, they might want the notebook, they'll probably want the video, the DVD, they'll want the clothing, and actually let's sell them the, let's market the plant pots as well, which could all look great in their bedroom. And we're seeing a lot of these IP brands coming around again and again, coming back on trend. They've had a, about 10, 15 years where they've not been so popular and then they've come around again because those kids that were buying them at first are now buying them for their own families and they're, they're now vintage products, they're vintage brands. So it's really interesting to see brands come and go over time that they have a bit of a 15 year dip and then they come back again because they're now vintage with with everyone looking like the 90s again. It's fantastic to see all these these IPs, these special core classic IPs come back up again. I definitely want to delve into that more a little bit later, but you bring me to my next question, which is when and how did this whole idea of product licensing begin to pop up in the marketplace? Absolutely, so licensing, is quite a new a new industry. I'm saying new, it started in the late 19th century, early 20th century, but it can be traced back really far when we look at the word brand and branding, which came from the Norse word um, to burn, fire, sword blade. So they would brand the farmers and say cowboys, they would brand their livestock um, in their own um, logo. We say logo today. It would be their initials. It would be, say, a star or a flower that would represent 
their land, their small holding, their farm. So even, even when we look at the really old cave paintings, I've said Norse words, but we could go really far back and look at the cave paintings. And that was a sign of the early people painting their animals, painting their homes, and to say, these are mine. This is my assets. This is my property. This is what I own. And so that leads on to branding today where companies have a logo, they'll be very iconic. They'll also have, say, characters, um, if they're a film brand, if they're a cartoon brand, they'll have their characters. Sports clubs may have their own colours that is part of their branding. They might have a mascot, um, and then museum brands, heritage brands, will have their core um artifacts that everyone would know of everyone would look at that and think right that's from the Louvre that's from the Met that's from the British Museum and they would Sutton know who helmet right the Sutton who exactly. helmet that's the- <laughs> Well, especially since that film, The Dig, came out. Wow. Okay. Uh, This is one of those moments where I'm thinking, oh, how could I have not realized that already? I never knew that the word brand comes from this ancient concept of marking ownership through the use of hot metal and 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 fire and I love that. That's that's actually a, a really wonderful um, way to frame this conversation. And you know, like we always say in this podcast, the more things change, <laughs> the more they, they're just like they've always been. So I I'm kind of officially mind blown by that. Thank you for explaining that to me. I I guess I wonder um, if you have any idea of why the concept of product licensing and and branding, um, you know, sort of one company renting <laughs> the intangible assets of another for, for profit, you know, arose at the time it did in the early 20th century. Absolutely. So um, in 1903, Beatrix Potter, um, who wrote Peter Rabbit and um, Tales of Jemima Puddle Duck and um, lots of those books. If anyone's heard of Peter Rabbit, their younger children today might know Peter Rabbit because of the new films that have just come out. Beatrix Potter wrote her first book, which she self-published in 1901. And in 1902, she entered into agreement with Frederick Warren and Co, the publishers. And in 1903, she was already a very successful, in a year or two, very successful woman who has published a number of books by this point. And she created her own Peter Rabbit toy that she sewed herself. She, she stuffed the toy, she stuffed the bunny, put a little, little jacket on him so he looked exactly like Peter Rabbit from her drawings. And she then went out to find a toy maker to then copy this and license it so she made the world's oldest licensed character which was Peter Rabbit the toy the the bear and then further along about two years later she then made the Peter Rabbit board game which was kind of a bit of a cat and mouse snakes and ladders sort of game with all her characters that then the children who have read her books could then engage with her characters more It would also entice them to buy more of the books because they'd play the game and not know a character. So they'd want to read that book. 
it was just a very good way of marketing rather than having children read the book be done with it they would keep keep um keep engaged with the characters and keep having fun wow so i i really love that i mean beatrix potter obviously was ahead of her time in many ways i mean I, not just as a shrewd businesswoman, clearly, but you know, you know, foreseeing this opportunity that that maybe nobody else had had yet, or at least hadn't capitalized on. But also as a storyteller, you know, sort of understanding ways of 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 building the experience of the characters in the story world into all parts of of a child's life. I mean, it's absolutely genius, and you know, I would argue that it's it's absolutely kind of the the assumption for how uh, new new toys and toy lines uh, and stories are peddled to people today, right? I mean, it's just that the first thing kids want to do is go find, oh, is there a website? And what else can I get that's got this character and, and this story on it? So amazing that that goes back to 1903. Yeah, which is, it's just incredible that she she saw a gap in the market and thought, right, well, no one else has taken a book and made it a toy and then made it furnishings and Peter Rabbit is still alive and well today with so much marketing coming through so many so much merchandise I don't think there's many babies at least in the western world that aren't given some form of Peter Rabbit toy as a rattle or a cuddly bear or and um, today that every everyone knows him and he it's been really lovely seeing this very classic IP um, that our grandparents, even great grandparents would have grown up on. And children today are still learning about Peter Rabbit from country walks. There's a lot of um, advertising throughout and immersive experiences. Um, these particular IPs, the classic IPs are coming out in, um, in hotels that are doing afternoon teas with special themes. We've seen the snowmen, the snowman um, afternoon teas at Christmas. We're seeing immersive experiences coming through, really interactive um, um, exhibitions, especially with the V&A at the moment with the Alice in Wonderland exhibitions. They're really looking at these historic characters and showing them in a new light for the digital age. Oh, I love it. It's great, isn't it? And well, and it goes to show you that you know, play is play, story is story. And at the end of the day, what wins out is is great relatable characters. And, you know, you don't really need to reinvent the wheel to to just continue to to appeal with with something that that is, as you say, built on kind of classic values of cute animals. And, you know, they're interacting with one another and they have clothing and, and you know, sort of a little microcosm of, of an imagined idyllic village life in England, right? So we've talked about Beatrix Potter so far. I know she's English. Uh, how extensive was this kind of IP licensing revolution at the beginning of the 20th century? Was it isolated to places like England or did it quickly become a broader phenomenon elsewhere in the world? Absolutely not. We, there is a very famous American character, which I'm sure lots of people know of and um, in the 1920s a little mouse arrived and he was on a steamboat and um, I'm sure you guessed that's Mickey Mouse and 
Walt Disney. I'm American, of course, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I could sing the song for you, but then people might turn their headphones off. So we won't. We want them to listen to the whole episode. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, Mickey Mouse arrived and, and the cartoon started and Walt Disney realized, well, um, these cartoons have been so incredible. Why don't I make some products as well? And so possibly the most famous licensed character of all time, Mickey Mouse became. Um, and he was created in 1928. And by the early 1930s, a watch was created for um for mickey mouse um and the watches really during the during the great depression these mickey mouse watches suddenly were being manufactured in a factory i believe in missouri and they gave way to so many jobs in a time when people were people were struggling people were losing jobs and so licensing really helped with, with the Great Depression in the 1920s, 1930s, especially in America. And Walt Disney started bringing out more and more toys. And then other cartoons were coming out. And we then see the rise of Looney Tunes, um, which came about in, um, in 1933, but really caused gain traction in about 1944 with a bit of a blip, obviously, because of the Second World War. And so Warner Brothers then had a holding on um, licensing products as well, which was brilliant. And they, um, around $6 billion of licensed products are um, Warner Brothers today. So they're still- oh, Just Warner Brothers alone. That's incredible. And about 63% of all licensed products today are bought in America, which... I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, you can walk down any supermarket, any, any pharmacy, any clothes shop, and you will see licensed products. You'll see spaghetti with Thomas the Tank Engine on. You'll see... Oh, yeah, everything. I mean, shampoo shampoo right I mean beach towels clothing of all kinds you know pencil boxes <laughs> lunch boxes the lunch box was the big thing for me when I was a kid it was such a big deal to have the cool lunch box with the, whatever character you loved most and yeah it was it was actually um it was so much more than than just sort of I, I think feeling like I was participating in a story world and with characters characters I love, but it, it was a fashion statement, right? It was telling the world who you were in a way. I mean, it, it was one of those really early ways, I think, in which kids have an opportunity to, to, you know, kind of use what fashion does for older people, right? In groups of their peers. Absolutely. So as, as a child, you're, you're definitely showing the brand that you like, the cartoons that you like, you're wearing The Simpsons, you've got um, got Marge on a t-shirt, but then you're wearing Bart Simpson trainers, etc. Um, and then as you grow up, you're wearing suddenly more branded, high fashion. You might be wearing a Dior belt with, with your jeans. You might be um, wearing Abercrombie and Fitch 
you there's lots of different brands that you might be wearing to show your loyalty and your love for that brand and we're seeing that really surge at the moment um especially through heritage brands we're seeing um a real rise in in fashion particularly of collaborations with heritage brands which has been really interesting and that's definitely come about in the last few years but particularly taken a a peak a spike with um with the current pandemic they um we're seeing entertainment licenses and um, so character licenses film licenses have been struggling a bit as well as say sports we've um we've had the olympics delayed and there's thousands millions billions of products that have, were made in late 2019 early 2020 but all branded with japan 2020 olympics and they never hit the shelves yeah yeah and they won't because there there will not be any spectators i've heard no that it's it's quite something yes the the cost of the pandemic just seems to keep rising in in every possible parameter um, well, one thing that I'm just so struck by listening to you talk about this progression of, you know, you start with your Bart Simpson or, um, you know, Scooby-Doo branded lunchbox and trainers and, you know, it's like licensed goods. It's, it's, it's consumer gateway drugs for kids, right? <laughs> it just sort of introduces them to, to paying um, a premium for their, their high-end branded fashion goods. It's, yeah, we wonder why why we live in such a, a commercial society. It's because we indoctrinate it very young, don't we? <laughs> I guess you could say that, absolutely. And it's also very interesting to see what brands people then stick with even when they're adults and introduced to their children and also what's what comes back around. I think there's probably a similar amount of people who wear cartoons licenses are plus 20 as well as below 20 years old mm -hmm. because they've, they've grown up on it they love it and and um, it's really interesting to see and especially in the UK I don't know whether Groovy Chick was a big brand in in the states or oh yeah <laughs> Groovy Chick, remember and um she went a bit quiet for about 15 years. I had a whole Groovy Chick bedroom and now suddenly we're seeing the Groovy Chick license come back because they're seeing millennial women have grown up on her and are now having children that they're buying Groovy Chick pajamas for their children, which is really interesting. That's the very core 90s brand, just as we would have, I would have grown up on Pippi Longstocking as well because my, my mum would have grown up on Pippi Longstocking. Now, Pippi Longstocking's having kind of a third wave. Um, all those brands, say, from the 60s are coming back around again. It's, it's really interesting to see, to see what comes and what goes and also what brands stay in the era. Absolutely. And, and I think um, and I definitely want to talk more about that. I, I, what pops into my mind listening to you talk about um, what comes around goes around from the 60s and 70s. I mean, look at vinyl. For goodness sake, you you couldn't give away a vinyl record album 15 years ago, but now they're 30 pounds at used record stores here in London. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I look at these things, I wish I had held on to them, but anyway, who knew? Absolutely. Um, 
Well, Georgina, what I'd love to do is try to um, think a little bit about what this work would have been like, both on kind of an individual worker level and also the firms who brokered these deals, you know, be between companies looking to capitalize on one another's you know, resources. Um, back when this was still kind of a, a new business in the early 20th century. And I mean, do we do we have any way of knowing, for example, if the job of, of producing or marketing licensed products was, was really different at the end of the day from producing or marketing more generic products? Absolutely. So we, we see in the 1920s, in 1922 to about 24, and the first fragrance licenses, the first agreements were formed and that was, um, unsurprisingly, by Coco Chanel. Um, ah, I've heard of her. <laughs> quite an amazing fashion designer who really took influence in her childhood and her surroundings and her life in Paris. And she formed a deal with Pierre Wertheimer and to create the Chanel Number no. 5 perfume. There was also the Chanel um, 21 and um, now we even see rebrands and there's the, um, the newer Chanel perfumes as well. But we even see her logo and her designs adapt as well from her surroundings. So even the two interlocking seeds that are just so iconic, um, they were very much part of her, um, her childhood and growing up and um, they were part she took them as inspiration from the stained glass windows of the cistern abbey in Oberzane, where she grew up oh. in France. And so that's very much what um, we do in, in heritage licensing um, across many museums and um, galleries and heritage sites um, from Stonehenge to the Great Wall of China um, to the Eiffel Tower. And then we've got museums such as the Met, the British Museum, the National Gallery, and the National Palace Museum. We see loads of um, designers now looking at the artifacts. They're looking at these wallpapers, stained glass windows, fashion of, say, the 17th century, of the intricate, beautiful embroidery, and really bringing that to be recreated as a product looking historic but also very modern for the modern consumer um, you could kind of see it in a way with Bridgerton um, that suddenly the Bridgerton films the tv series has really become popular and it's really showing a surge in Georgian clothing and as inspiration and so a lot of museums are picking up on this trend it's a new trend that no one really envisioned and now we're seeing mm. long dresses dainty florals gorgeous clothes that are definitely being inspired by the artifacts in museums fashion museums and and lots of um lots of places that hold incredible collections of historic historic dress and clothing. Yeah, I'm really struck by that. Um, I, I think I perhaps hadn't thought about it quite so explicitly as that, you know, that 
not only are people tasked with creating licensed products that tie into heritage communities or institutions, collections, what have you, you know, they're, they're kind of beholden to what the client wants, right? So it's not just a, a pure creative endeavor that they're going to create a garment or, or a, a piece of home decor that they think is beautiful and expresses their vision for it. But, you know, it, it, it also has to meet the mission. It has to be historically rooted. And that's kind of a tall order. It actually, it sounds like it's kind of a challenging task. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it is quite amazing when we, I've worked with, um, heritage sites that we've we've looked at the artifacts and we thought right this would be perfect for wallpaper or furnishing fabrics but actually we really couldn't put it on a notebook because that just wouldn't work or we've looked at the stories behind it stories are just fascinating that I'm I research a lot of history along with loads of other brands they research the history of the artifacts and say right actually we could we could really capitalize on this story um, so one that I love is um, Queen Mary II of England who ruled with her husband William III and she collected um, chinaware, delftware and um, the, the white china with the intricate blue flowers and all trade was coming from from the east and coming into Europe and she was collecting this and instead of like many historic houses at the time, were collecting these beautiful chinaware and having a cabinet to have them on display to say, here's my collection, how wonderful. I, she, I'm modern and sophisticated <laughs> and I have taste, right? Exactly. <laughs> and money. <laughs> exactly. And Queen Mary lit, bought her whole collection or was gifted it by friends and she would dot it around her palaces. Obviously, there were a few, and she would dot them around, have a couple of vases in her bedroom. She'd have a few pots in the lounge, not the lounge, the, the sitting room, what were they, the drawing room, and um, a few in the dining room. And that really, she she's known as, um, she's remembered as the, the mother of interior design. So I really look at that when um, and get inspired when, when I'm looking at interior design and how we can be inspired by that and think, right, people don't want a collection anymore. They want items that will go together, but will complement each other on other sides of the room rather than a, here's my Snoopy collection. Here's my, here's my V&A vase. Um, and here's my British Museum book. And here's, all these different designs that they're coming out from and um, to have their kind of gallery at home feel to their houses, which is brilliant. And yeah, and I was definitely thinking about masks because licensed masks have become very popular in the last year or so. And um, we're seeing lots of different brands all over face masks, which is been an interesting side to licensing as well. The pandemic and the fact that you've got to wear this thing. Everybody, you know, it, it's kind of extraordinary. I mean, when in recorded human history has 
just about everyone on the planet been expected to do the same thing whenever in company with one another and out in public. And uh, yeah, I, I can't even imagine what the boon to various mask producers has been. And, and it gets pretty old pretty quickly just wearing those paper blue and white ones. You know? So I have to say, I've, I've, I haven't actively you know, made a project of it, but when I've seen some really cool masks, I've placed an order. I've paid more than I probably should have for a cute fabric thing that, that yeah, it sort of expresses me you know, as opposed to just having me feel very um, anonymous behind my, my paper disposable mask. Exactly. It's a new way that people are showing their individuality. They're showing what sports scene they like. They're showing what artists they like. I've seen lots of Monets of, or Degas or Van Goghs on masks. It's, it's quite incredible. And they're showing, I haven't been to an exhibition, but I still love this work or I haven't been to a sports game, but I still support the players. It's been really interesting to see that um, that side of the unity as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the theme that's that's really emerging in this conversation is just that this this intersection I talked about at the beginning really does include a huge element of consumer aspiration and, and desire, right? This, this desire to express oneself. We're really seeing people um, showing their, their loyalties and also really want new experiences. And this has been really interesting seeing how licensing can come about. So we are seeing exhibitions become more interactive, but we're also seeing dinners, which will be coming out soon, There'll be interactive dinners where, which we, we saw briefly in the last few years, and I, th I feel they'll gain a lots, lots of tractions where you're having a dinner experience as if you're in a film or in a time period, you might dine with the characters of your favorite films, Marvel comics, etc. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with, with brands over the next few years. We've, um, we're seeing musicians who may necessarily not have been able to record a studio album or go on tour at the moment. They are bringing out new ways to engage with their audiences. And we've seen virtual concerts, which is a form of licensing, which is really interesting to see. Um, I think, um, and we've seen different varieties of performers bringing out clothes and even films that may necessarily have not been able to go to the cinema have gone straight to streaming platforms but actually those streaming platforms are then to engage people to come and watch those films on their own sofas they are then bringing out products from these tv series from these films in their own in their own sites and they so it's been really interesting normally you may go to the cinema and you might have a bucket of popcorn which would have that film on, which would be a licensed popcorn bucket. But actually, they know that the film can't get advertising through, through that as well as engaging their audience. So they are putting out products that you would have at home instead. So you might have collected a, a cup from, from the cinema when you saw the film. But actually, if you're at home, you might just watch the film. So 
now they're bringing out different products that you would engage with at home but also it's been really interesting with everyone becoming more digital we're seeing licensed brands turning digital too um, especially with the esports um games and lots of lots of um playstation games xbox games are having big brands that you may know of you can now buy um or hire or rent i'm i'm not sure their costume for your digital character which has been re a really new way of licensing where we're in a generation now that people want access to the brands and they don't necessarily want to buy it they'll they would rent it they'll borrow it um and it's really interesting to see that they just want to experience it rather than have it on their shelf you know i i i've just got to ask the question because we've covered such a vast range of licensed products that are out there ranging from you know personal adornment items to home decor to let's just be honest useless objects like a branded popcorn bucket <laughs> right as opposed to a paper one that you throw out on your way out yeah do you see any any line where you know, we might just go a little too far in licensing a brand for the purpose of peddling, you know, merchandise that that may be utterly unrelated to the brand or what it stands for. Absolutely. So it's been really interesting, especially in the last few years, there have been a clampdown of um, cartoon characters on food, particularly um, unhealthy food. So we're seeing licensed brands um, such as superheroes, as cartoon characters, going from potentially being emblazoned on cereals that potentially had chocolate chips in and um, fizzy sweets and um, fizzy bottles and fizzy drinks, pop drinks. And, and now those characters are now on the labels of apples and bananas and much more healthy food because I'm sure everyone has probably been shopping with a child and as soon as they see their fam favourite character on a cake, they want it. So it's really interesting to see those characters moving with the times um, with everyone having a more healthy um, outlook everyone's becoming more self-aware and with wellness and mindfulness they they want a healthy lifestyle for their children as well so it's great to see um the shift in the industry into that as well but if you're um pitching a product in a back to school range you've really got to think about the target audience and i think a lot of brands are now really becoming awake to the the ideas of this is our target audience and this is who we want to pitch to and this is how we want their lifestyle to be and this is how we want to see our brand in a really positive light and um show what we we really show what our story is about what our um heritage is about and they want to show that that theme 
which is why at the moment like heritage licensing has been great because they've there is quite there is an authenticity about a museum you you are finding out obviously where the provenance of artifacts obviously there's lots of different ways to look at that as well and um, with provenance of artifacts but you are getting an IP an asset that has hundreds if not thousands of years of history and that we can discuss in a product and it can educate um, children or, or an older audience depending on the product it's it gives a really authentic look at our history the global history the brand they know if they are buying a museum or heritage brand they know that some of the some of the pro money from that product is going back into conserving the product that's conserving the artifact that is on that notebook that is on that dress you've got a dress inspired by some great artist van gogh let's say and you know that the royalties from that has gone into conserving that painting so it's a way of showing yeah i i support this as well which is really interesting to see yeah that's actually a really silver lining to all of this i think because i i'll confess that i wonder sometimes you know if there's any risk in actually branding a random array of modern products you know such as apparel home goods gadgets you know even magnets for goodness sake you know with the likeness of historical figures and imbuing them somehow with those stories i i completely agree that on the one hand it's a teachable opportunity and it's it it is uh it's a hook for people into uh an historic topic or an artifact that's of great heritage or uh, a hook into um historical topic or an artifact that's of of great importance to a nation's heritage to people who might not know about it or might not know a lot about it but i i also have to wonder you know is there is there any risk in doing that, you know, um, of diluting the historical authenticity, which I think you do rightfully use as, as part of the selling proposition, but what does it mean when, you know, it's something that would never have been a part of the world that the artifact represents? Absolutely. I feel like licensed products of a heritage nature are really a great way to engage with um with a, the world of culture of knowing and understanding um artifacts from say an area where you may never have been and to bring it into your home and learn about it to wear a scarf and say yes this has been inspired by this painting or this vase this ceramics and yes there is there is also of course a risk with that we um but i i feel many of many museums at the moment are in a great shift in a great change of how they're evaluating how they're presenting their items and how they're discussing why the items are there, how they came there, um, whether they should stay there as well, which has been a really interesting topic. Um, and they're also being very open about 
funding and where the conservation goes, the expertise that are there. There's brilliant TV shows on at the moment showing the behind the scenes of a wealth of galleries. I've seen behind the scenes of um, the Museum of Modern Art and the, um, the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. It have been bringing out some amazing items and we're seeing lots of different collections that are really showing this new side of history, more, I say new side of history, a more inclusive view of history, I would say. In a way, getting a notebook with someone you've never heard of before or um, an area of history that you, you might not have seen could be the end to you learning more about that topic. Um, which I feel is a really great way, even just from a magnet or a, a drinks bottle and suddenly thinking, oh, this is of Chinese delftware. Why is that on sale in the supermarket and learning all about that? So I think there's a great side to it too. Yeah. And, you know, the, just one last question, Georgina, this has been so thought provoking and interesting. Um, I, I wonder if you have in mind any, any licensed products that either you've worked with or have simply come across in passing in your experience with um, heritage institutions in the UK that just really gets it right. Is there a product line that you think just is kind of the model for how this sort of licensing based on historic properties and heritage should follow going forward? Absolutely. So I've, I've worked on a number of um, licenses. I work for Artist Story Brands, who are a new company we've been put together in the last, um, in the last year. And we work with the National Gallery and the um, National Palaces Museum, which is in Taiwan, um, and their collections, uh, a host of Chinese history from 8,000 years, they span. Wow. It's, it's quite incredible. We've started on designs at the moment, and I'm so excited for these all to be launched um, later this year. But previously, I've worked on um, collections with the Tower of London. We've done um, coin collections, which have been really authentic to see people collecting the ravens um, and the white tower and engaging with that history. And also I've loved working with jewelry brands that we've looked at um, really showing like the pagoda at Kew Gardens in London, um, which I absolutely loved. And also a collection with a fashion company Hobbs in England, which even, even sold in through Bloomingdale's across America as well. And that was inspired by their historic royal palaces. And we've even, um, a couple of years ago, we bought a few of those collections into a, a few of those products, those dresses, shoes, handbags, into the historic royal palaces archives to so the fashion. And I'd love to know that one day, something that my team and I worked on will be on display in the museum as an artifact in itself. And it's inspired. Oh, I love by that. Yeah, people. you're absolutely right. <laughs> How self-referential. <laughs> it's very meta. <laughs> exactly. I think it would be amazing to think that, um, especially with the Museum of Brands, um, which is in London, which I would highly recommend 
anyone who's into branding to visit they they really show the history of like so many monopolies they've got Cadbury chocolate dating back 100 or so years and just seeing products come through and they've even got a wealth of licensed products that you can see how cartoons have really been put throughout and um, toys and food and we we talk about that area as FMCG fast moving consumer goods which are, is a great area to get into if you want your brand out there very quickly and um, if it's if it's a well-known brand to go through quick foods um, and it's really interesting to see in in that museum the development of advertising and marketing and yeah I'd like to think that maybe something that my team at Art Story and that I've worked on one day will be in a museum itself as an artifact who knows well, me too. And I, I think that with the incredible proliferation of this kind of licensed product offerings that we've talked about in this conversation today, uh, I think that's a pretty good bet. I mean, it seems like it's it's really a, a growing and um, very well-received segment of this licensed market. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your experience with us. It's a really interesting take on this question of branding and product marketing with, with your, your background as an historian and archeologist. So uh, many, many thanks for the great work you're doing in that and for talking, talking with us about it today. Thanks, Karen. One of the most striking points I took away from my conversation with Georgina is the propensity of modern fans to want to rent versus buy the IP they love versus owning the tangible assets for themselves. I mean, it, it seems to me a, a really different way of engaging with the brands that we love. And it, it compels me to consider the subscription-based economy model that has grown so popular in these last two decades or so. It's a really interesting dynamic, especially in the heritage licensing industry, where the tangible collectible continues, for now at least, to reign supreme in museum gift shops the world over. And this is even as museums increasingly are questioning the nature of their own collections of objects, and especially the question of who rightfully owns them, wherever they happen to be kept and displayed at the moment. For us human beings, it seems that the concept of ownership over what we create has always been fraught and continues to evolve in fascinating ways. Hey there, you can follow today's guest at Georgina underscore Dorothy on Twitter. And in some recent good news, Georgina is now events coordinator for the Historians Magazine, which provides a platform for budding historians looking to write about their fantastic work. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. Thanks for listening. Working Over Time is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>